if you've got a, a Bible, could you please turn to the book of Titus and chapter 2? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce all ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. We are waiting, I hope, uh, for a blessed hope. But what is biblical hope? What is it to hope? Uh, Well, if you're an English supporter this afternoon, uh, you're going to cross everything you possibly can in the hope that they will win. Don't bother, it doesn't make any difference. Whatever you cross and do, that doesn't work. But it is interesting that Christians can be spiritual in regard to such things like hope. So we need to know what is a biblical hope. It is a confident expectation of things that are to come. How do I know that? Well, in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 11, it says this. It says, it is the full assurance of hope until uh, the end. Sorry, I didn't do that, but we've got that. Full assurance of hope until the end. So Christians should be confident that a holy God will work for us and that our future is very bright. It's, this is it. We have the best future of everybody. Why is that? Why is that? Well, the Bible tells us there's two reasons. It says there is a reason of grace and there is a reason of the gospel. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 16, the God and Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. So the more that we know about grace and understand grace, That is what David read this morning about what God did for us. The more we will hope. So if you don't know much about grace, you are going to be hopeless. But he goes on and to into the in Colossians and he says uh, in Colossians chapter one verse twenty three, do not shift from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So the grace of God and the good news of Jesus crucified for our sins, raised from the dead, are the reasons that we can hope in God and have a confident expectation that our future is good for us. So it's about grace and the gospel. We can look at those two things and go, hey, look at that. It's magnificent. That leads us, though, to ask some big questions like what and why and how. And I'm just going to try and answer those and then uh, move on. First, how can I hope when by nature I do not trust God or love God or want to obey him? How can I have a hope? Well, Paul answers that. He says this in 1 Peter, By God's grace, great mercy, we have been born again into what? A living hope. So God overcomes our rebellion. 
He overcomes and gives us a new heart, and that heart, by nature, hopes in God. It's something that happens. So if you are not a Christian, it is natural for you to worry about your future. If you are a Christian, you should not be worrying. If you are, then you need to understand grace and the gospel again. The second is this question. How are we hope in God when we don't know his promises? Well, how can I be a Christian and hope in God? Now, this is not going to be a huge prophetic revelation. But I suspect that the major problem is found in this verse. Paul says this to the the Roman church. He said in Romans 15 verse 4, Whatever is written in the former times was written for our instruction that by endurance and encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. So if you are not experiencing hope, I would like to suggest you are not a Bible reader. And I want to also suggest that it is very difficult for you to imbibe hope and the thrill of that hope comes unless you are in the Word of God. Because the Word of God, according to the Apostle Paul, was described to bring hope into your life. So if you are thinking, well, I'm a bit miserable this morning, the answer is not what you're facing. The answer is that you haven't been in the Word of God. That's it. The scripture brings you hope. Costa coffee, Nigel, does not. It makes me go, mm, every now and again, but it doesn't bring me hope. Sometimes I, I, I went on a train last weekend with my brother. My brother has been rung me two or three times, and he said, this was the greatest thing of my life. Sorry, Dave, if you listen to it, it isn't. The return of Christ is the greatest thing in your life. And actually, this does not bring us hope. If we get into the scriptures, we see hope and we're transformed. Else what we do is hope becomes moments of earthly pleasure. Yeah? So we need to get into this because eternal pleasure will give us eternal hope. So, here we go. What is, what is it we hope for? 3 nil. The No, sorry, um... Titus 2 verse 13 says this. Ha, if you read this in a few months' time, they'll go, what's he on about? Titus 2.13, it says, Waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ. Here it comes, the content, the substance of our blessed hope is the appearing of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ. Hope is the return of Christ or the second coming of Christ. That is hope. That is surely, hopefully, what you've all got to buzz about today. This could be the day. Come on. You woke up this morning and you just peeked up and you looked and you opened the curtains and you're thinking, is he coming? Didn't you? Now, the reason that you didn't, I would like to suggest to you, is found in our world today and our church. Because there is a rejection of the second coming. So I'm going to depress you before I encourage you. 
and it would be possible at this point for me to get into all sorts of controversies over the timing of this great event in relation to other prophetic things like who is the Antichrist? Is it the German football team? (laughs) What about the great tribulation and when will it happen, the thousand years and all that sort of stuff? And we can do that. The trouble is with all those sort of things is that what they do is they end up with Christians arguing and both parties never end up with hope. They end up hating and disagreeing with one another and the product, according to the Apostle Paul, of the second coming is to bring us hope. So you just want to go, don't do that. Thank you. But there is a greater debate that concerns me more and I want to mention it because I think that we need to realise that the appearing of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ is considered by many to be utterly stupid, outdated mythology and scientifically untenable. And that is the world that we live in and it is that world that affects the way that we think. It makes us think little about the return of Christ. Because it doesn't feature on Neighbours, does it? Or the news. There's a, a, a guy called Carl Sagan. Carl Sagan is since uh, well gone from us, but he was an astronomer, an astrophysics, uh, astrophysicist. He was an author, a cosmologist, and he was a, a professor at Cornell and Harvard Universities. And he said this. He said... Uh, that I put the second coming in the same category as the nursery rhyme where the cow jumped over the moon. And he ruled out the work of Jesus uh, by a very unscientific response from a scientist. But actually, what happened is that affected the whole world. You're just a bunch of people that believe. And you just think, actually, come on, you are one of the brainiest people that existed on this planet and you want to argue about Jesus by saying, oh, it's like the cow jumped over the moon. But actually, it, that statement affected the world. And people believed him because he said, you're just a bunch of people that believe something like a nursery rhyme. Well, that's one thing. But what we need to be more prepared for of the second coming is actually inside the church because I believe that what happens is that this doctrine is, uh, it's, it's jolting faith, it's losing doctrinal balance and it's robbing people of hope. There are a lot of hopeless people that are, are attending churches right now. I'll give you some examples as to why that is. In 1950, William Neal, who was at the University of Nottingham, wrote in the Moffat commentary series, the day of the Lord is God's timeless judgment, which is past, present and future. In a sense, it is, it, is all, it is always to come. In a sense, it is always present. In a sense, it has always been past. Thus, the parousia, that's the technical word for the second coming, is like creation. It is, in real sense, timeless, not a historical event, but the underlying purpose of history and the summing up of all things in Christ. What does he mean by that? What he means by this is that the second coming has symbolic meaning, but has not got a historic 
uh, is not a historic event. This is a Christian guy writing commentaries that are in our churches. I nicked this out of one of mine, by the way. I was shocked to realize that when I was studying for this, all these different things that came up in my commentaries, <laughs> they were alternate versions, but I just thought, what is this? Here's another one. Uh, one of the most influential New Testament scholars of our century, a guy called Rudolf Boltzmann, he wrote, be, uh, just bear with me with this, the mythical eschatology is untenable. For the reason that the parousia of Christ never took place in the New Testament as the New Testament expected. History did not come to an end, as every schoolboy knows. It will run its course, and even if we believe that the world as we know will come to an end, I expect that it will take the form of a natural catastrophe, not a mythical event such as the New Testament expects. That is in his commentary uh, to the Thessalonians. What? Let me give you one more to just depress you further. This is another commentary on Thessalonians. Uh, appeared in 1972 by a guy called Ernest Best. He didn't do the best for me. He's Professor of Divinity and Biblical Criticism at the University of Glasgow. He isn't anymore. He's retired. But he wrote a commentary. He said, We conclude that the end is something with, uh, with men... Uh, sorry, we have to conclude that the end is something with which men will never have to reckon in practical terms. And again, excluding the possible destruction of our own planet, and that it is wrong to think of a real physical end which God achieves in some public way as to think of a real physical beginning. So what he's saying is, no return of Christ. There was no physical beginning. Now, Carl Sagan, I can understand, because he just doesn't believe in God, but these guys, they believe in God. The, but the professors of divinity, I think, you just think, well, you know, you're the product of your writing, the product of your leadership, the product of your church is in some way to honor Jesus. Why are you penning such words? I find it very curious. And the main problem with that is that what it does is that it contradicts what the Bible says and it actually attacks the very center of the, and the core of what we believe. And it does affect it. So I want to just look at it. First, the center of our Christianity is the coming of Son of God into the world as a real man to destroy the works of the devil and to create a new people for his own glory. The very heart of our faith is that he did this by obeying what his father asked him to do, by dying for the sins of people, by rising victorious over death, ascending to the right hand of the father with the enemies at his footstool. And the second coming of Christ is the completion of that saving work. If you take away the whole fabric of his return, you take away the product of salvation. What you say is that it is incomplete, that it is pointless, that what is happening here is worthless, because, and we are a bunch of fools, because the product of our salvation is finally completed when he returns. 
we are saved and we are being saved and will be saved. So what if you consider that statement? You can, I want you to just think about this for a while. There is a physical incarnation as the Son of God. Jesus came physically as a baby. There was a physical death. He died a physical death on a cross. There was a physical resurrection. When he met with Thomas, Thomas said, he said to Thomas, Hey Thomas, stick your finger in there. Feel me. Touch me. I am alive. There was a physical ascension. What happened when Phil was explaining it the week before was that he went up on the clouds and the disciples saw him go. His body went up in the air. And then what? Well, according to these guys, poof, nothing. Never to be seen on earth. You see, when people are decrying the second coming, it's a, it's, they're also saying there cannot be a physical incarnation, there cannot be a physical resurrection, there cannot be a physical... because there will be no physical return. Why? Well... To use Boltzmann's phrase, every schoolboy knows, <laughs> which is just I find really patronising, isn't it? I want you to read my commentary, and every schoolboy knows, you know. Thank you for treating me with honour and grace. But actually, if you think about it, if you turn it round, every schoolboy knows, excuse me, I've just written this bit, every schoolboy knows that if a real priest, uh, prince comes into a real country, to conquer and reclaim it for his father, the king. And if he dies, and he really rises from the dead with, with all power in heaven and on earth, and if he gives us the weapons of spiritual warfare, and he gives them to his revolutionary followers, and he returns to his father, then you can know that he will certainly return again. Why is that? Because he came to conquer. He came to conquer. He didn't just come to die. This guy came to conquer. That's the part of it. The conquering is yet to come. He wasn't just, well, he came and died. Great, he died on a cross. Magnificent that he died on a cross. Oh, well, he, you know, he conquered death. Magnificent that he conquered death. But he ascended on clay. Wasn't that great? Hey, look at that, how that went up there. That, that's something else to see. No, he comes to conquer. He comes, when he comes again, he comes as this victorious king on a white charger and all that stuff that you read in Revelations because he comes to conquer. There is a conquering yet to come. And what you say is, hey, it was a good death and a good resurrection, but forget the conquering stuff. No, I'm in it for the conquering stuff. I'm in it because he has won a great victory which one day he will come and claim the whole thing. That's the part of it. He came to conquer. He will conquer. The scripture says this, the AV, and I tried to find this because it's something that my dad used to say to me and I couldn't find it. He says, he will not be denied the fruit of his travail. Somebody like Bill will find me that in a minute and give it to me at the end. But I couldn't find it, so I just... And it's true. The fruit of his travail is the second coming of Christ. That's why it says, look, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He made it, he redeemed it, he will have it. He sat down at the right hand of the Father and he will come and he will restore all things. He will come and he will conquer. And I think what you're saying is, hey, you can do the Christian life thing, but there won't be any conquering stuff. No. How can you live without conquering? How can you be more than conquerors and not have a conqueror on your side? How can you say those sort of things? That's just daft, isn't it? 
Well, he just got to survive a bit then. But I'm not sure what the greatest tragedy is. The, the brilliant Carl Sagan, who believed that the meaning of life could be found in a, a limbic system or a neocortex of the brain, or that actually we live in a day where, where Christians are stripping away Jesus and his final victory. I'm in this because I want to see the victory. I don't know about you, and I know it's a World Cup illustration, but there are, there are some absolute nutters, aren't they, when you see them interviewed uh, on the telly. And they say, well, we've given, we've given up you know, X amount of money. It doesn't matter whether you're from whatever nation. And we've come to see. And if you said to them, we've come to the World Cup, what we've done is that we want you to come to the World Cup so that you can be just smashed apart in the group rounds. They say, yeah, that's worth spending the money on. No, they're a bunch of nutters. They're all going because they want to be there on that day and see the cup lifted up. That's why they've gone. That's why they've spent the money. And that's what I'm in this for, are you not? I'm in this because I want to see Jesus lifted up. I want to see the conquering thing come. And in any case, I think we do need to pray for our scientists that they actually may see the limits of their methods. But also I think we need to pray for these theologians that actually preach Jesus without a return of Christ. What is that? So that's the sort of negative side of it. So let's, let's try and up it a bit. Raise up the stakes. The blessed hope of believers. Because after becoming depressed, we need to encourage. And uh, it says that the blessed hope of all is to those who believe in the appearing of our great God, and Saviour Jesus Christ. Well, if you notice, there are two appearings of Christ. The first one uh, is called the appearance of grace, and the other one is the appearance of glory. Verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That's the first coming of Christ. That's the appearance of grace. Then verse 13, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearance of the glory of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ. That's the second coming of Christ, the appearance of glory. They are distinctly different. One demonstrates grace, the other one glory. One, so once, when we get to, when, when we're in this world, we celebrate grace. When we get to heaven, we will celebrate glory. And that's why sometimes when you're reading those scriptures and you think, hey, look, that's a bit strange. That's what's to come, folks. That's what you will have. And verse 14 describes just how that grace appears. And the two are linked together. What we have to try and remember here is that there's a, there's a verse 14 is sandwiched between grace and glory. And you see that where it says, who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous with good works. So when the grace of God appeared in history 2,000 years ago, he appeared as a real man, that's Jesus, who really died to redeem us and to make us what? Zealous, passionate, This is what grace is supposed to do for us. The purpose of the appearance of God's grace is to make you a zealot for him. So how do you make somebody a zealot? You get them to look at the grace of God. And sometimes if you ever wonder, why am I so dull? It's the grace of God. 
It's actually that you have yet to discover how wide, deep, long, is the grace of God. You can't be a zealot by waking up one morning and thinking, I am a zealot. Or even buying a t-shirt like Rupert's got, because he's woke up this morning and thought, I am Superman. And Fleur turned over and think, no, you're not. (laughs) And you see, it doesn't work like that. Hey, look, I am a Christian zealot. We've seen that in the New Testament where some of the disciples tried to be a zealot. Zealots get it wrong. But a zealot person that is responding to the grace of God and who's passionate for Jesus is one of the most powerful weapons that this world can contain. So your product of the grace of God, the product of the cross, the product of Ephesians 2 is that you should be passionate and not dull. The aim of the grace is described in verse 12. So grace comes, it makes us passionate, and it trains us to renounce all ungodliness. So you look at the cross and you go, nah. You can't go, nah, without looking at the cross. It doesn't work like that. Else all you do is you go, no. You can't do it. It is impossible. You renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright and and godly lives in this age by understanding grace. You understand grace and you look at that and you go, powerless. Why would I? And that's what happens, you see. And the reason that people struggle is not the power of sin. Actually, it's the revelation of the cross. Because the more the cross comes into focus, the grace comes into focus. You just look at sin and go, <laughs> you do that. And that's what, that's what he's saying. So verse 12 and 14 are like a sandwich around verse 13. Both describe the main aim and the effect of God's grace in the first coming of Jesus Christ. It's the meat in the middle of the sandwich. But what God's grace has begun in our lives through the first coming, his glory will complete through the second coming. It's it's to be completed. So I want to suggest that we need to, as Christians, look back and look forward. And I think it would be fair to say on the basis of these four, that the four verses, 11 to 14, that the incentive and the power to live as a Christian, pleasing to God, comes from two directions. It comes from looking back into grace and it comes to looking forward into glory. You should have two parts to your, two strings to your bow. You look back with gratitude and you look forward with hope. That's the, that's the incentive to do from doing that. It comes from those two things. We look back to grace, we look forward to glory, and that is the strength in which we, we live. We need both to help us. And you can't live without them both. Why do I say that? Because Paul says that. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 to 28, he says this, And just as, as it is appointed for man to die once, And after that come judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So the passage teaches us clearly that the saving work of Christ began with grace, where he bore our sins on the cross. And the completion of our salvation is the second coming, 
where he saves us from the final wrath of God. And he brings us into his heaven. And if you strip away the second coming of Christ, you have torn salvation into half. That's what you've done. You've just said that salvation is about a little bit of joy on this earth. Hey, I'm in it for the long run in heaven. This is temporary. Do, do, do you live as if this is temporary? I'll test that one. Because, I don't mean that funny, but you know, that's what we do. We need to test it, don't we? Because everything then, job, career, money, house, car, pleasure, all those sort of things, you view those in temporary terms. Where you view your pleasure is in the future. And you say, well, well, you know, I can't do that because I've got... Hold on. (laughs) This is temporary. I will live for eternity. And what you're saying is that I have salvation on earth. I don't have salvation in heaven. Oh, well, if it happens, it happens, you know, and one day I'll get taken up in the air. No. No, no, no. I want to live. <laughs> what Paul is saying is, is that we, we, we are zealous for him. We're passionate for him. We're responding to the grace of God. But we're living as if he could come tomorrow, today, right now. So the question is, who will be saved at the second coming? And if you look back to those verses from Hebrews in verse 28, it says it, they'll save those who eagerly wait for him, which is my thing. You know, we're enjoying grace and we're eagerly waiting for him. We're saying, hey, the cross is magnificent. What a salvation I've got. All the stuff we've been doing. And he'll also be saying, hey, he's coming. He sort of, you know, need to go to the loo. He's coming. You know, that sort of excitement. And I don't think that most people do live like that. I think they probably just sort of, you know, hey, salvation's coming, you know, and he'll come someday. You know, that sort of thing. That's not how the New Testament lived. They lived eagerly waiting for him. But what I do wonder, I just want to go back to poor old Ernest Best and William Neal and Rudolf Baum. Do you, do you think they never read this when they wrote that? He will save those who are eagerly wait for him. He will separate the sheep and the goats. They will be divided and the sheep are eagerly waiting for him and the goats just keep munching. And I don't mean that that when we're eagerly waiting for him, it's sort of like death row. You know. Because, you know, some Christians can live like that kind of, oh, you know, I, I might die. Yeah? And it's true that it's sort of almost you know, as if, oh my goodness, this life will end, and then, then what? What is that? What is it? I have a little problem with my two girls, because every now and again, what they say is that they say things like this, Dad, you're always talking about de- dying and death. And, and they are right, because I do, I do. The, but the, one of the reasons that I do is that, is that I'm actually looking forward to heaven. I, am I the only person on the planet that thinks that it's going to be better than this? It, it just, and, that, you know, and if it comes tomorrow, I'm well prepared for it, because I think that I will be in a better place. 
Now, I don't know whether you were like me at school, but at the, the last day at primary school, when I was at primary school, Silas, this is an English thing and in my age, the last day at primary school that used to happen was that you could take in board games. I don't know what they do these days. Jonathan's laughing, which means that he is older than he looks. So... <laughs> You could take in board games. The reason for that is electronic games did not exist. Okay, So you could take in a board game. And they were vetted. There were things like Scrabble. Well, I never took Scrabble because I would never win at it because I can only do three words, so three letters. So that was it. Anyway, the last day at school, you could, do th- you could take a board game. You were allowed to wear your own clothes. No school uniform. But I don't know whether you were like this. It was the worst day for watching the clock. And although that you were in the school uniform and you'd got your scrabble, the clock just did not go round quick enough. And, so, and as the day went on, there was a sense of a sort of, well, we just got naughtier as the time went on, really. And we became uncontrollable. And the last half an hour was just agony for the bell to go. And what they used to say to us is that they used to do the 15-minute countdown. So at 15 minutes, you packed your board game away. You tidied up your desk. Remember those days? You had to undo it, tidied it all up. So you had to put your textbooks over here, your books over here, your pens in that sort of, and you tidied it all up. And you sat for a moment of quietness before the bell. (laughs) Well, I used to have in my school reports, lacks concentration. (laughs) So if you can imagine, I mean, you know, I'm just like that in, in worship. It's sort of arms and legs all over the place. So you can imagine that I'm behind the desk. And what happens is that the bell suddenly goes. And our bell, which I've still got in our front room, you can check this, was not one of those electronic bells across the whole thing. You had to run down the corridor doing it like this, which meant that the ones at the end heard the bell before you did. And they always started with the infants and walk through to the juniors. So we were, and when you're in the last class, it is agonizing because there are doors opening and bags being closed and people are going out and the bell hasn't arrived at your end. But suddenly it does. And you can imagine that we are up against the door. We're pressing through the teachers on the floor, tread on the head. We're out there to the sweet shops. And we were doing this sort of thing going down the road because when you were out, you were cheering and you were just shouting. And it was sort of like, a, and the teachers were going, thank goodness they've gone. And it was all that sort of stuff. And it was a magnificent triumph. <laughs> and I can remember me and my friend, Dave Joyce, who was in another school. He was, he, he, I was in Clothier Street School. He was in Little London School. We were green. They were brown. We would say, on the last day, we will run home. And we would meet each other and we would run bags. Remember this plimpsoll bag, 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 all that sort of stuff. And we would go home and we would run all the way home. And then you say to Christians, you are going home. And they go, well, <laughs> this is it, folks. This is it. This is it. It's the last day of school, folks. The clock is ticking. Tidy your desks, for heaven's sake. 
Sort it all out. Get the textbooks in place. The pens done. Get your desk ready. Pack the scrabble away. Get the pumps in the bag. The bell's going to ring. That's it. Come on. And then what are the Christians doing? Where's the pumps? Where's the pumps? It's what we're all doing. You're going, oh, no, I want to put the pumps on. No, you don't. You want to go running down the road. Home. We're coming home. And do you know what used to happen at home? We hadn't got... Sorry, this is not in the sermon. We hadn't got a fridge. We had got a cold slab. Mom put the stuff on the cold slab. Mrs. Joyce had a fridge freezer. Because... And as we belted round the corner, me and David Joyce, there was Mrs. Joyce with, what, lollipops. What? Come on, guys, there's lollipops waiting at the end of here. It's like, the, what are you, what's, you know, you think, oh, no. This is it, it's lollipops. So... Do you eagerly await Christ's coming? We're getting there. Now, to look at ourselves, you've said that you do. And I don't mean do you eagerly desire the doctrine, because that's rubbish. This is a face-to-face meeting with a person. Don't love the doctrine, love the book. Love the person. There's Mrs. Joyce waiting at the end with a lollipop for heaven's sake. Come on, love the person. Do you eagerly await? This is very crucial because it tests your faith. Peter said this in his first letter, chapter 2. He said, to you who believe, he is precious. He's precious. What does that mean? Well, when I turn up to church, I could do a little bit of... No, his return is precious as well. Everything about him is precious. And the preciousness of Jesus is evidence of our faith. And the anticipation of his coming is evidence of his preciousness. And therefore you can test your faith by saying, how precious is this event to me? Now I don't, I don't want you to just think this bizarre. And I'm in real trouble when I get home. Because I've penned this bit several times and I'm going to get it wrong. So somebody here might be providing me lunch, but I'll try and explain what this means. Here we go, Nigel. This could be the end of 27 years of marriage. I want you to know, Callie, that I love you. (laughs) But I have to admit that there are just times in my existence when I, I am not thinking about my wife. Just times. So I'm not saying that you should become a load of bunch of obsessive return of Christ lunatics. Because the church already has them and they're no good to man the beast. It's pointless doing evangelism, Christ is returning. Seen that lot? What, no? No, We're going to give out leaflets. That sort of stuff. But it's this sort of thing. Does your mind return frequently to the truth of Christ appearing? Every now and again, does does it just, do you return to it? Hey, 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 that sort of thing. When your mind returns to the truth, what, what does your heart do? 
Oh, stink, I haven't done the ironing. That would be what my wife would say. But, and, or is this sort of thing, you know, is this, does the heart begin to go, hey, he's returning? You know, do you pray Maranatha? When, you are, when we are praying together, are we praying Maranatha? Are we praying, come, Lord Jesus, quickly? Would you like to know this about the... I'd rather him come this week, really, because I'm cheesed off with the World Cup, actually. And I'm a football fan. I'm just really pigged off of it, because I'm just pigged off of the attitudes, really, that are behind it. And I just think, no, come, Lord Jesus. You come, because it's a better thing than the World Cup. That's, and I'm, you know, but, I, you know, when, you are, when we are meeting... You know, when was the last small group meeting when we said... The, the small group meeting is to pray for the return of Christ. Maranatha. But the early church were praying in that way. Now, the, you, you, they may be difficult questions, but I want to ask, just give you three possible reasons that, that those are not happening. And then, then what we'll do is that we'll wind it up, okay? A little bit. I want to just wind it up to end. You, you may have trusted in Jesus as your saviour and as Lord, but you may not have been well taught in the second coming. So you just might be ignorant. You've never heard anybody talk about the second coming. That's fine. That's okay. We can light that fire. Secondly, you may have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. You may know in the truth in your head, but you just go and call to it. We can light that fire. <laughs> That's okay. The third thing is actually, you may never have submitted to Jesus Christ as your Lord. You may never have trusted him as Savior. You need to become a Christian. <laughs> So, so that you can enjoy the return of him. Now, if any of these three conditions fit you, I want you to listen carefully because I do want to, to wind it up. Because I believe that, uh, that as we can see, that the return of Christ is, should be most lively and it should be something that we experience eager expectation. And my prayer is this morning that you will be affected as I try and conclude and try and wind this up a little bit and have a little bit of fun, okay? Because if you look at what those verses said, it says, first of all, it's a blessed hope. We should eagerly wait the blessing of our Lord Jesus Christ because it's a blessed hope. I, I would like to suggest that you may have had some earthly pleasures and you may have enjoyed them, but you are about to get your socks blessed off. It is go- you are going to have so much blessing. It is going to overwhelm you. You are going to be blessed out of your physical body. That's why you get a glorious body, because the blessing is so big, you need a glorious body to be able to contain it. The earthly body cannot contain the blessing. So God says, how can I get so much blessing from me into that person? I know I've got to give them a glorious body so that they can do it. Now, what do you think of that then? Because even what you've been blessed in this earth, it's still in this body, which means it is, even though it's blessing, it's quite small. So God says, I need to give you a big one so that you can contain it. But what does blessing mean? It is the opposite to cursing. Remember that from the Old Testament? Cursing and blessing. And it's found in the New Testament by, therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There is a blessing for those that are in Christ Jesus. Note in the scripture it says, the great God and Saviour. Saviour. Not just judge, but Saviour. 
He comes to finally save us. What does he finally come to save us from? The wrath of God. The work of the cross has been done, but the day when the wrath of God will be brought in judgment to his people is still to come. And on that day, you will not be cursed, you will be blessed. That is a wonderful thing for us to have. God has destined for us blessing, salvation. It's a blessed hope, a confident expectation is this, that when I get to heaven, I will not be cursed, I will be blessed, and it will be overwhelming, and the new body will be able to take it. Oh, dear. Come on. Second one, it's a visible hope. I love this. This just got to me so much. The appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ as a saviour is going to be physical. Think about this. Ever since the Son of God became a man, people have wanted to see him. What did the wise men do? They said, we want to go and see who? Jesus. Okay, we'll travel. Camels. That must have been sore on the bum. But they, I mean, that's what they did. When, you, when Jesus grows up a little bit older, and, sort of, and he becomes a man, Philip says to Nathaniel, hey, guy, come and see. That's what he said. Zacchaeus climbs into a sycamore tree for the saviour he wanted to see. Yeah, it's true, isn't it? What did he do? He glides into... And on that saviour, past that way he looked into. It's true, isn't it? And you just think, come on, everybody wanted to see Jesus. Peter of Peter and Mac knows that one, which is quite sad, really, but there you go. We'll could sing that one at the end. Okay. <laughs> the Apostle Paul wrote this. He said, now we see through a glass darkly, but then we will see face to face. Whatever you see here... Great that it is, it's foggy. Then you'll go, ba-boom! Wow! And then you get John, don't you? John sort of hangs on everything. He said, it does not yet appear what we shall be, but when we see him, we will be like him. When we see him, when we see him, we will be... There's something in that, isn't there? And I just want to confess this. I don't want any more long-distance phone calls, Facebook quotes from faceless people. I don't, not, none of that text. What is a, when I had the first mobile phone thing, the text was dead excited. I do not want a text from Jesus. Not any longer. Do you, not want, to, do you want to not look and see the lips move? Do you want to not look into the eye of the one who saved you and stare upon the beauty of him? Do you not want to stand there and sort of just do what Thomas did? Just as he's real and he's mine. My father used to say to me when I was little, Nigel, you must be respectful. Shake his hand. Do you, do you not want to grab him? Do you not want to do it? Do you not want to burst through heaven's door and say, Excuse me, Phil Harmon, I'm coming through. You may be bigger, but I'm hugging him. Do you not just want to grab hold of him, look at him and say, I'm so grateful for what you have done for me. I don't want to go, A, B, so, oh, thank you. <laughs> Jesus send, ding, 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 ding. No! I want to look at him. I want to gaze upon him. I want to look at the beauty and the astoundingness of his and just enjoy it. 
It's like saying, come to this party, but the person that you've invited you, they're just not going to be there. I want to be there in the party and look at him. I want to go up in the tree. Do you not? I'm ready to climb the tree. (laughs) I want you to come with me. Don't, Don't get there and be disappointed. Thirdly, lastly, it's a glorious one. The appearing of the glory of our Jesus Christ. Listen to John. I want to try to get this. In a, when John writes Revelation, it is not a theological dissemination of different practices. It is a guy that sees something that he cannot explain. And what we do is the book of Revelation says, well, what it means is this. We don't know what he meant because we weren't there. And he is captured into meeting the glorified Christ. He's on Patmos and he sees heaven opened. He sees what you... And he tries to articulate what he sees. So he puts it down and we go, ah, but what he meant with this. He didn't know quite what he meant because it was so glorious. He couldn't find the words to contain it. And we try to dissect the words. Basically, if you want to be untheological about it, Revelation is a jumble of words of a man that was trying to explain something that he could not. But it's still glorious. And what people do is they say, yeah, but in that, those three constructions there in the Greek and the whatever, it's like me sometimes. I mean, I've tried several times to go, that's all that Revelation is. It's just a whole book of fitness. That's the whole thing about it. And it says like this, you imagine, let me just try and read this. Now you're from that angle, it's all right, Claire, you'll be all right. I'm not coming, you're right. He thought I was going to run at you then. (laughs) He's trying to explain it. So he does this. So he says, I saw. That's That's the clue. Okay, I saw. Now you think of this, one like the Son of Man. That's a big clue. Because it says, one like the Son of Man, which means he'd not seen anything like this before. So then he tries to explain it. And you think about this. He said, well, he starts off all right, doesn't he? He says, he was clothed with a long robe. I can get that. I can get that. And then he says, and he had a, 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 goldle, gold, goldle, a, a, a golden girdle or a girdle golden <laughs> around his breast. So, and I can even understand that. Yes, I can do that. There he was. He's a man-like figure. He's got a white robe on and he's got a goodle goodle. That sort of stuff. And then what, what happens is that he must suddenly just look beyond. Because what happens when you meet somebody for the first time is that you look at the hole, don't you? You're just catching the hole. And then he focuses in and he's shocked. And he's full of glory and his tongue just does not explain what he's seen because he said his head, his head and his hair were white like wool. What he's saying is, this is something that I've never seen before. And then he tries to say, well, they're not quite like wool, but like snow. Well, is it like wool or is it like snow? Well, he doesn't know because he's just looking at something that is unexplainably glorious. He's just looked up at the head and went, well, it's snow, it's wool. It's, it, uh, he doesn't know. He's trying to use earthly things to describe something that's glorious, and he can't. 
It's the only two things that he can think of. Well, I've seen wolves, lambs wool, and I've seen a bit of snow. That's all that I can think of. And we're there, and we say, so it's beyond what he's ever seen before. And then he goes on, and he said, and he must have looked at him. It must be that Zacchaeus moment where Jesus looked up and he said, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house for tea. And he looks up, he's looked, and he's focused in, and he looks at the eyes. And he said, and the eyes are like flames of fire. What do you mean they're like flames of fire? And you get people that write great tombs on this. Well, the only thing that he'd ever seen was a fire that was bright. He didn't understand laser shows that we have at Glastonbury and all that sort of stuff. Else he probably would have put, his eyes were like the laser show at Glastonbury. Or it would have been, his eyes were like Steve the Lights at Borderlands. But he didn't. He wrote, his eyes were, his eyes were like flames of fire. He's struggling to contain about the person that's standing in front of him. And then, I don't know what happens, but I don't know, what, perhaps you don't do this, because he's suddenly looking at his face, and he looks at his feet. What is that? So he must have, got, he must have sort of looked at the robe, looked up, looked down. And, and he says, and his feet were like burnished bronze. And he, what's he doing looking at his feet? And it says, as though they were refined in a furnace. And we're sort of going, and that means, no, he's just saying, this is a something of magnificent stature I haven't seen before. And then it must have been that he speaks to him. Because, and I don't know what he said, hello, John. But however the tenor of his voice was, it was the sound of many waters. Now remember that he has been exiled onto an isle of Patmos. So he would have known what the the ferocity of the sea would have been like. And he's hearing Jesus speak and he said, the only thing that I can think about this person is that it sounds something similar to this. But then he says something really strange. He says, and in his right hand he held seven stars. How does he do that then? Well, in my logic, stars are big. Aren't they? So he's looking at something that he does not understand. And people say, well, is that the seven churches? All that sort of stuff. Well, you know, we could go down that line. But in his hand, he's got seven stars. And then from his mouth issues a two-edged sword. And his face is shining like the sun at full strength. This will be the accumulation of our existence. That we will stand be, be, and we will not just see our crucified saviour. We will see a glorious one in a position that none of us yet have seen. And what is this meant to do? It was meant to bowl him over. And when you get to heaven, you'll stand before the saviour and what you see will bowl you over. You will be and I will be like him. Unfortunately, he was on earth. You'll be in heaven. When you see him, you'll be like him. You'll be able to understand fully. He was, he was explaining something he could not understand fully. This is in part, when you go there, you'll be able to see that and understand that. This is the bonus. The bonus of the book of Revelation is what is described dimly here. You will be able to articulate in heaven and understand all that. You'll be able to see this magnificent saviour. 
And the scripture says, Behold, he's coming on the clouds of heaven. It will be with power and great glory. And it says he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. They will gather in the elect from the four winds, from the ends of heaven uh, to the other. And we will glorify the Lord forever. We will be like this with him. Our glorified body will have this sense in it. Paul wrote this to Timothy. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord of righteous, the, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. So my appeal to you is be eager. Be eager with an eager expectation for the return of Saviour because you will enjoy it. You will have fun. It will be a great day. It's worth waiting for. Let's pray. So we stand. Father, we want to thank you for the promise of Jesus. We want to thank you that you are that you will uh, usher in a day uh, where Jesus will return. And we want to ask you, the Spirit of God, would you just come upon us as a people who will eagerly wait for that great day. And we want to say to you, thank you that you've said in Scripture that we will be blessed on that day, that we will be able to see you, and that we will see you in all your glory and to, be un- to understand what the Apostle John could not. And we are such a privileged people because what the Apostle tried to explain, we will be able to explain fully. And it will articulate our hearts in praise and worship for you forever and ever. Amen.